0: In the opening scene of the movie Fiddler on the Roof, the main character of the film Tevya, he welcomes us to his little village of Anatevka. Set in the early 20th century in Russia, Tevya takes us through the various aspects of daily life in his Jewish community of his village. And he tells us that the reason that that they lived this way, he said, can be summed up in one word, Tradition and in the process of explaining their traditions Tevya stops and he asks a very important question Concerning a specific custom of his people. He says and how did this tradition get started? His answer, I don't know, but it's a tradition and folks that is the way traditions are We don't always know their origins, but we tend to follow them anyway, just because they are traditions Now, in and of themselves, there's really nothing wrong with traditions. We all have them. We have traditions in the way we celebrate birthdays. We have Christmas time traditions. We eat traditional foods associated with certain holidays and things like that. These are all good. These are all very appropriate traditions. But traditions can become a very serious problem when they become the core ...and substance of our religious experience... ...and they develop then into meaningless rituals... ...empty routines that we follow, blindly follow... ...without even thinking about them... ...without knowing why we do these things. This is precisely what the Pharisees of our Lord's Day... ...had done with Judaism. They had imposed a set of man-made traditions... ...on Old Testament laws... ...so that their form of Judaism was not Old Testament at all. It was a suffocating, lifeless, legalistic, man-made religion. A religion based upon a code of rules and regulations established by the rabbis of that day and not by God himself. And as a result of the Pharisees' ritualistic and external approach to religion, they were continuously at odds with Jesus because Jesus always taught pure biblical truth based on the divine intention of the Old Testament. And therefore, he emphasized what the law and the prophets emphasized, that God was concerned with man's heart, man's inner response to his word. In other words, Jesus taught about true, genuine spirituality, which is about obedience to God from the heart, while the Pharisees emphasized only external rituals without any concern for obeying from their hearts. And that's why Jesus and the Pharisees clashed over a number of issues, and today in our study, of Luke, we come now to one of those issues that they clashed over, and that is the issue of fasting, abstaining from food and drink for a period of time. So I invite you to open your Bibles, your tablets, or to read on the screen Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendants of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment, otherwise he'll both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. Now this is a very interesting incident. And the reason that it is so interesting is because it reveals that the Pharisees were not the only ones in Israel who had a problem with Jesus. You see, Matthew, in his account of this very same incident, he tells us that some of the followers of John the Baptist were troubled over the fact that Jesus and his disciples did not follow the same traditions of fasting that they did and that the Pharisees did. And so, according to Matthew, it was the disciples of John who came to Jesus asking him to explain. His actions. Now, on the surface, their question is only about fasting. They actually also asked about prayers. Jesus didn't even deal with that, but he did deal with fasting. But the issue is really much deeper than this. You see, unlike the Pharisees, who were openly hostile to Jesus and really didn't care what Jesus had to say, John's disciples were different. John's disciples were very sincere and they were really interested in Christ's words. Still, their question about fasting revealed that just like the Pharisees, they couldn't understand why Jesus did not practice the customs and traditions of rabbinical Judaism. In other words, they wanted to know why Jesus did not follow and observe all of the accepted religious practices of his day, like fasting. And Jesus understood exactly what they were asking because his answer reflects the broader issue that was at stake. See, what John's disciples were really asking was how come your teaching and your activities emphasize internal issues like forsaking sin while the Pharisees in their teaching they emphasize only external issues like fasting. Now, this appears to be precisely what these men were asking because the answer that Jesus gives them reveals the stark difference between the pure gospel message that he taught and the religious traditions of Judaism that the Pharisees taught. In other words, Jesus explains that what he had come to do wasn't to embrace. Or to reform the man-made traditions of rabbinical Judaism. But to establish something brand new. A new way of life that was based on gospel truth from the word of God. And not the rabbi's religious traditions and opinions. And then having said that he proceeded to make it clear that these two belief systems. His emphasizing internal stuff and theirs emphasizing external stuff. Cannot exist together. They are mutually exclusive. Now folks, no message could be more relevant than this one. Not today. Because the religious spirit of our age is about diversity. It's about openness to embracing all views while excluding no one and no one's opinion. But the gospel message is not like that. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's about narrowness It's about intolerance of error. It's about the excluding of all views contrary to the truth about Christ and His cross. Summing up the meaning of this passage from Luke and why it is just so relevant and pertinent to us today, One Bible teacher said this, he said the theme of this closing section of chapter 5 is an appropriate one. In this age where diversity of belief, openness to other religious views, and inclusivism are seen as the primary religious virtues. In his confrontation with the Jewish religious leaders over the question of fasting... The Lord Jesus Christ set forth the clearly the uniqueness and exclusivity of the gospel. He did not come as merely another rabbi within the framework of contemporary Judaism, nor did he come to make a few minor tweaks to the existing religious system of his day. Jesus came to preach the gospel, which fulfilled the Old Testament and was incompatible with the Jewish religion of his day. Judaism was concerned with self-righteousness, the gospel with heart righteousness. Judaism was concerned with what man thought, the gospel with what God thinks. Judaism was concerned with external behavior, the gospel with internal attitudes. What a great statement and absolutely true. This is our world and we have to stand for the purity of the gospel. So the passage before us is really about genuine gospel-centered Christianity as opposed to a religion based upon nothing more than traditions and outward ceremonies and regulations and then not mixing the two, not mixing them at all. And therefore what we see then in these verses is that in answering this question posed to him about fasting, Jesus reveals two realities of genuine Christianity. Those who have trusted Christ, they know these realities. It's a part of their life and those who have based their lives on man-made religious traditions sadly do not know these realities. Now what we're going to learn today is very beneficial for us because what Jesus has to say in these verses should enable each of us to see the difference between having a personal relationship with God through faith in Christ and having a faith-based solely upon man-made religious thoughts and traditions and if you discover that all you have in your belief system are nothing more than religious traditions and that's it then you do need to recognize you don't know Christ you need to come to know Christ and to experience genuine Christianity a relationship with him so let's begin to delve into this passage and as we do we're going to discover these two realities of genuine christianity that jesus spoke of with the first one being this there is joy in knowing him and not sorrow there is joy in knowing him and not sorrow in knowing him but great joy verse 33 and they said to him the disciples of john often fast and offer prayers the disciples of the pharisees also do the same but yours eat and drink now the passage, as you can see, it begins by Luke telling us about a troubling concern that some people have with Jesus over really two issues: number one is the issue of fasting, which means the abstaining from eating food, and number two is the issue of offering prayers and what they mean by this is is ritual prayers offered at certain set times during the day. Now notice this: Luke says, and they said to him. But notice, he doesn't identify who the they are. But the fact that he doesn't tell us who they are, that would naturally lead us to believe that these are the same people who Jesus just had a conflict with in the previous passage, namely the Pharisees, and that this new conflict then is a continuation. It's a continuation of the conflict that he just had. And the Pharisees are the ones who continued this with him. And you know what? That makes perfect sense. Because the verses just before this passage were about the Pharisees complaining. As you'll recall, we studied this last week. They complained about Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and notorious sinners in the house of Matthew. Remember, well, we went over last week that Matthew was a tax collector. Jesus passed by his table and said, follow me. And he did. He left it all to follow Christ. He was so overjoyed at the forgiveness of his sins that he held a big reception for Christ in his house in which he invited his colleagues, other tax collectors, and notorious sinners. But the Pharisees didn't like that, that Jesus dared to associate and eat and drink with such lowlifes. So... That was last week. This week now, they have another complaint. And Luke tells us about this new complaint that they leveled against Jesus. However, as I told you just a few minutes ago, in Matthew's account of this very same incident, he tells us that it was the disciples of John the Baptist who came to Jesus with this complaint. He doesn't say it was the Pharisees. So the question is, which group came to Jesus? The Pharisees or the followers of John the Baptist? Well, the answer is both of them. Both of them. This is not speculation. Both of them. There can be no contradiction in the Bible. There are no mistakes in the Bible. And we know that both of these groups came to Jesus. How do we know this? Because Mark wrote a gospel. And Mark included in his gospel account this very same incident. And Mark tells us that it was both the Pharisees and the disciples of John who came to Jesus asking him a question about Fasting. So most likely the situation is this. The Pharisees, already being annoyed at Jesus, would seem to have pushed John's disciples into joining them and asking Jesus this question. And what both of these groups then wanted to know was why Jesus and his followers did not observe the normal Jewish religious practices of their day, like they did, specifically when it came to fasting. Fasting. Now, while Luke doesn't explicitly say this, it may very well be that that at the precise time that Jesus and his disciples were feasting with Matthew, feasting upon food and drinks in Matthew's house, John's disciples and the Pharisees may very well have been engaged in fasting at the very same time. And because of this sharp contrast in practice, it led them to question the Lord about this. So, here's the situation. These disciples of John the Baptist, along with some Pharisees, they approached Jesus to ask Him why, unlike them, He and His disciples feast and they don't fast. And why, unlike them, He and His disciples don't follow the customary practice of observing set times of praying during the day. Now, as I told you, Jesus didn't even respond to the question about praying often. Most likely, Because that wasn't even an issue, because Jesus, along with his disciples, did pray quite frequently. But he did respond to their question about fasting. But before we can really understand the meaning of this question raised by John's disciples, as well as the Pharisees, and the Lord's response to it, we need to first ask ourselves this question. In light of Christ's ministry, why does John the Baptist even have any disciples? As you'll recall, John the Baptist was a unique individual. He was unique in many ways. He was not one of the Lord's apostles. He was not someone who stayed around for the founding of the church. John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah. He went before Jesus and his ministry was to prepare the Jewish nation for the coming of their Messiah by calling Israel to repentance. That was John's mission. And those Jewish individuals who did repent of their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. Now, in the course of his ministry, John accumulated a number of followers, disciples, students, pupils. But when Jesus began his ministry, just a little bit after John started, John appropriately then pointed his disciples away from himself to Jesus, and he told them, in essence, to follow him. Here's what we read in John chapter 1 verses 35 through 37. Again the next day John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and he said behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. In essence what John is saying stop following me that's the Messiah go follow him and two of them did. Now This should have happened to all of John's disciples. They should have all followed Jesus, but they didn't. We know that because two chapters later, in chapter 3, starting in verse 22, we read these words. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, what we read here is that as a result of this jealousy, and that's exactly what it was, it was jealousy on the part of John's disciples, some of them refused to follow his teaching about transferring their allegiance to Jesus. Instead, they continued as a distinct group of John the Baptist disciples, and they kept aloof from Christ's disciples. Now you may wonder why by the time we get to Luke chapter 5 and this question of fasting raised by John's disciples, you may wonder why John hadn't put a stop to this to his men following him when they should have been following Christ. And the answer is that according to Luke chapter 3 verse 20, John was now in prison where Herod would soon put him to death. And without John's leadership, His disciples gravitated to the teaching that they had been raised on, that is to say, traditional Jewish ceremonies and observances as taught and practiced by the Pharisees. In addition, we should keep in mind that unlike Jesus, who did not hesitate to eat and to to drink with sinners, John wasn't like that. John was more of an ascetic in that he abstained from certain foods and wine, and very likely he made it a point in his life, and therefore in the life of his disciples, to practice fasting quite often. And in that sense, he was very different from Jesus. And Jesus called attention to this difference between he and John when he said these words in Matthew chapter 11, verses 18 and 19. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so very likely, because of John's ascetic lifestyle, including fasting, the fact that they had been raised on the traditional Jewish ceremonies and observances as taught by the Pharisees, it's very likely that these disciples of John came to Jesus and very naturally wondered Why do we and the Pharisees fast so often, but your disciples, they don't fast at all. We've never seen them fast. In other words, they, they're saying, they practice the officially approved, sanctioned Jewish standard of fasting quite frequently, just like the Pharisees did, and they wanted to know why Jesus did not command His followers to do the same thing. The accepted practice of the day. Now, before we see our Lord's answer, it's important to understand what the Old Testament taught about fasting and then to see how the Pharisees practiced it because there was a huge difference. You see, the Old Testament only commanded the Jewish people to fast one day out of the entire year. It's the Day of Atonement known as Yom Kippur and Jewish people still celebrate that day with many of them fasting and they do it as an expression and this is the original intent of this as an expression of sorrow and grieving and repentance over sin that's the intent of Yom Kippur and the fast however in addition to this command to fast one day out of the year fasting came to be practiced by the Jewish people when they faced major calamities such as the time of Esther, when the king of Persia gave the edict to kill all the Jews in all of his empire, all of his kingdom. Or when the prophet Joel in chapter 1 called the nation to a public fast so that they could repent and petition God to forgive them. So fasting, understand this, in Old Testament times it was associated with times of mourning over sin and diligently seeking God's face. But in the course of time, fasting Amongst the Jewish people, like so many other religious practices in rabbinical Judaism, was turned into a way to try to gain God's approval. So that the Jewish people often fasted thinking that this was their way to achieve holiness, a righteous standing before God. In other words, fasting became a work of self righteousness, an effort to gain merit with God. They try to work their way to heaven by fasting as well as other religious traditions. And by the time of Jesus, note this, the Pharisees had reduced fasting to a a two-day-a-week system. Every Monday and Thursday, without exception, pious Jews were required to fast. Did you catch that? Required. This is not optional. This is mandated. This is exactly what Jesus was referring to when he gave the parable of the self-righteous Pharisee that I read to you earlier in Luke 18, where the man said, I fast twice a week. What he's talking about is that, like all good Pharisees, he fasted two times every week, Monday and Thursday, because this is what he thought would earn him a good standing with God. But in addition... But in addition to a Pharisee, fasting also meant mourning and grieving as if they were in deep sorrow over their sin. But they weren't in deep sorrow over their sin. They just wanted everybody who looked at them to think that they were in deep sorrow. So that when they fasted, they tried to look as unhappy As they possibly could. And that's precisely what Jesus condemned about their fasting. Let me go back to Matthew chapter 6. In verse 16 Jesus said whenever you fast do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. The hypocrites he's talking about are the Pharisees. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they're fasting. Truly I say to you they have their reward in full. So they fasted and they made sure that everybody knew they were fasting by how bad they looked. One Bible teacher explained the actions of the Pharisees this way. So I read this, you'll understand why Jesus condemned them for their hypocrisy. The overall effect, he says, of this was to view true religion as solemn, joyless, Gloomy. Therefore, when fasting, the Pharisees tried to look as forlorn as possible. Some actually whitened their faces to affect an emaciated look, refused to wash, and wore their clothes in shoddy disarray. The supposition was that you could not be spiritual unless you were uncomfortable. Spirituality, they thought, consisted of doing things you didn't want to do and refraining from the things you did want to do. You see, to people like the Pharisees and these wayward followers of John the Baptist, religious rituals were just chores of obligation. That's all they were. And folks, that's the way religion is without Christ. It's a bunch of joyless duties that you force yourself to endure. All of us need to be careful that we don't do the same thing. And we could very easily do it by reducing worship to a set of lifeless routines that we practice without having our hearts really set upon God. In fact, sometimes we do it, we don't even think about what we're doing. It's easy to do. You just go through the motions of things that we're expected to do, like reading our Bibles every day, like praying, like thanking God before we eat. Like coming to church on Sundays. Like singing songs without even thinking about the words. The meaning of the words that we're singing. All of these things can become joyless and lifeless customs. Which is exactly what fasting had become to the Pharisees and to John's disciples. And so they wanted to know why Jesus didn't teach his followers to practice religion this way. Why don't you and your men fast twice a week with long gloomy faces like we do and so Jesus answered their question by revealing one of the great truths about genuine gospel-centered Christianity notice what he said in verse 34 and Jesus said to them you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them can you now in this statement Jesus does a very typical Jewish thing he answers a question by asking a question And he does this by comparing his relationship with his disciples to that of a groom with his attendants. In other words, the groomsmen at his own wedding. And the specific question that he asks is one that demands a negative answer. He wants to know if it's possible for a groom's attendants to mourn while the groom is with them at his own wedding. And of course the answer is, well, of course not, no. No. Now, some people may cry at weddings, but these are usually tears of joy, not sorrow. The point that our Lord is making is that since his relationship with his disciples is like that of a groom in attendance at his own wedding, and because a wedding is a joyful, wonderful occasion, then his attendance couldn't possibly be expected to fast while the wedding reception was going on since it would be completely inappropriate. It'd just be out of place because fasting is associated with sadness, sorrow, grief, not with joy, not with rejoicing. Now, listen, all wedding receptions are festive occasions. But in Christ's day, a Jewish wedding was an especially joyous event that lasted for about seven days. You see, the married couple did not go away for a honeymoon. Instead, they stayed at home for a week and they opened their house for their friends to come over and to celebrate with them. And so for those seven days, there was continuous rejoicing and feasting. And it was the groom's closest friends, his attendants, who were given the responsibility to make sure there was fun and festivities at the party. And therefore it was customary for those attendants to be officially exempt from fasting during the seven-day wedding feast. I can't imagine that anybody at the wedding would fast, but they had the rabbis officially say that they couldn't fast. They should not fast. In fact, here's what one rabbi said. All in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances, which would lessen their joy. So there, even if they wanted to fast, they couldn't. I can't imagine anyone wanting to fast during a seven-day wedding party. Now, Jesus then, he used this analogy of a joyous Jewish wedding feast to explain to John's disciples and to these Pharisees why his disciples did not fast. He explained that as long as he was present with them, he was like a bridegroom and his disciples were like his attendants and they were feasting and rejoicing and celebrating with him. That is to say, it just would have been totally out of place for Christ's disciples to fast with sorrow and mourning while Jesus, the groom, was still present with them. But listen, our Lord did not stop there with these wedding remarks. Jesus went on to state that this festive-like time at a wedding reception would not always be the case. It will come to a close. He said in verse 35, but the days will come, And when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. Now, what is our Lord talking about? This is a a reference to Christ's upcoming death. He is predicting his own death when he would be taken away and crucified. And at that time, he said, his disciples, then they'll fast. Why? Because that will be a time of deep sorrow when fasting is most appropriate folks, that's exactly what happened. Jesus predicted this great sorrow his disciples would experience when he was taken from them and murdered. On the very night he was arrested, Jesus said these words to his followers. John chapter 16, starting at verse 16. A little while and you'll no longer see me. And again a little while and you will see me some of his disciples then said to one another what is this thing that he's telling us a little while and you'll not see me and again a little while and you will see me and because I go to the father so they were saying what is this that he says a little while we don't know what he's talking about Jesus knew that they wished to question him and he said to them are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while and you'll not see me and again a little while and you will see me Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now. But I will see you again, and your heart will Rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Now, Jesus was absolutely right. In facing his death, his disciples indeed did experience torturous, heartbreaking sorrow. But that sorrow was brief, only for a few days. And then it soon gave way to the joy of his resurrection and all that followed. Now, in light of the fact that Jesus said that the time of him being taken away in death was only a few days and therefore his disciples fasting in mourning for him was also just a few days too until the resurrection. A very valid question for us to ask at this point is this, is it appropriate, is it right for us as believers in Christ, is it right for us to be fasting in these days during this time? And the answer is yes it is. It is because although we know the joy of His resurrection and Christ has given us joy in our hearts, knowing that our sins have been completely forgiven and that He will be returning someday, the fact remains that Jesus has been taken physically from us in the sense that 40 days... After his resurrection, he did return to the Father so that he is now in heaven seated at the right hand of God the Father even though he is with us by virtue of the fact that he indwells us by the Holy Spirit. And so in light of the fact that Jesus has been taken from us, it is appropriate for us to fast these days. Now there is no specific command given in the New Testament that says you must fast. There is no command. You'll not find it. However, listen closely, it is assumed though, assumed that in these days, while the Lord is away and we await his return, that we will fast. That is an assumption that Jesus makes. And I say that because Jesus himself spoke about his disciples fasting when he said, we go back to Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. He's saying this to his followers, whenever you fast, So he's telling us, you will fast. Whenever you fast, not a command, but whenever you fast, don't put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men. When they're fasting, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. What he meant by that is they wanted the applause of men, and that's exactly what they got. But you, meaning you followers of mine, when you fast, Anoint your head, wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In other words, when you fast, don't go telling anybody that you're fasting. That's between you and the Lord. Not only did Jesus assume that we will fast, but fasting is exactly what we read happened in the early church, in the book of Acts, because the book of Acts reveals that the early disciples did fast even after Christ's resurrection and return to glory. However, understand this. They never fasted as a religious ritual with a set formula of predetermined times like the Pharisees did. They didn't do that at all. Instead, they fasted during special times when they were facing unusual circumstances that called for them to seek God fervently, such as in Acts 13... We read that the church at Antioch fasted and prayed and laid hands on Paul and Barnabas, releasing them from missionary work into the Gentile world. They knew this was a monumental time when the gospel would be going out to the Gentiles and they fasted and prayed and laid hands on Paul and Barnabas. Again, Acts 14, we read that Paul and Barnabas, in their missionary journey, they appointed elders in the young churches having prayed with fasting so I say to you based on all that has been revealed to us about fasting it is appropriate to fast when you are facing a crisis a time of extreme sorrow a time of great difficulty when your heart is heavy or when there's a special burden that you're carrying or a major decision that you're facing Listen, over the years as a pastor, I have advised many people that when they are facing a difficult trial, it would be appropriate, it would be wise, it would be good for them to fast and pray and seek the Lord. And what I usually advise them to do is to consider taking what would normally be their lunchtime, perhaps a a half hour, and don't eat that day. But the time you would give to eating and drinking, go spend that half hour in praying and seeking God as you look to Him concerning your trial that's fasting but although there are times we should fast because Jesus as I said he assumed that his followers would fast since life is filled these days with trials and suffering understand this fasting must never become a routine religious habit that becomes the norm for us so that we are fasting on a regular basis just for the sake of fasting like the Pharisees every Monday Monday Every Thursday, no matter what I'm facing, I'm going to fast. We're not to do that. And why is that? Listen closely. Because even though, yes, we experience many trials, our lives are supposed to be characterized by joy and not by mourning. And fasting is associated with mourning and sorrow. Yes, there are times we do that, but that's not to characterize our lives. Because our lives should be characterized, if we know Christ, should be characterized by cheerfulness and rejoicing. This is really the heart of what Jesus was telling John the Baptist's disciples. He wanted them to know that genuine Christianity is marked by a joy that comes from knowing and enjoying fellowship with him. Just like a festive occasion, like a wedding. Just as the attendants of the bridegroom, they cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. So we should not mourn as a normal habit of life. Yes, there are times we mourn. There are times we grieve. But in the big picture of our lives, we should be a joyful people. And we should rejoice because Jesus, though physically is in heaven, so that we are unable to see him with our eyes. Nevertheless, he's with us indwelling us By the Spirit of God. You see, even in these days, as I said, of trials and tribulations, knowing Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, it ought to be like a continual celebration because He is always with us. Even when you're feeling down, you can rejoice. It's not a matter of being emotionally up for this, we choose to rejoice. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.8, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The Apostle Paul told the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. He said, always. Even when I'm down? Well, that's what Paul said. Always. And he repeated it again just in case they didn't get it the first time. And Paul practiced what he preached because he told the Corinthians that though he was sorrowful... He said, yet he was always rejoicing. And he wrote in Galatians that one of the fruits of the Spirit of God within us, producing godliness, Christ-likeness in us, is joy. Now, joy in fellowshipping with Christ, it's something important for us to grasp. Because, frankly, so many people, even some Christians, associate Christianity with joylessness and a certain seriousness that is lacking any cheerfulness I had a professor at Bible college who said, if you've got the joy of the Lord in your heart, please notify your face. (laughs) Listen, this is why there are some... Examples in church history of believers who were criticized, actually criticized for laughing and enjoying themselves. For example, like John Newton, the author of the great hymn Amazing Grace. He was condemned by a committee of ministers because he made a witty remark in the pulpit that was interpreted as something frivolous. And Charles Spurgeon was severely criticized for using humor in the pulpit. I, I love Spurgeon's response. He said, if they only knew how much I held back, they would commend me. <laughs> and then there was Augustus Frankie, who in the 1700s, he established orphanages in Germany, but had a no smiling rule. He said, and I quote, no child under any circumstances was to smile in his orphanage. You can't make this stuff up. This is what he really said. Now, folks, understand that the Pharisees' faith, as is true of all religion without Christ, it is a faith of gloom. Religious routines that are lifeless, they're, they're depressing. But real Christianity is joyful because Jesus is joyful. And he commands us to be joyful And because he's so rich in grace towards us, we should be filled with joy. This should be the way we are. Not faking it, but genuine fellowship with him that develops and cultivates joy in our lives. I love what Bible teacher Ken Hughes had to say about Christ's joy. He said, Jesus was a joyous person "...who for the joy set before him endured the cross," Hebrews 12, 2. "...his sinless human personality radiated joy. He was love incarnate and people felt his love. Jesus cared and his disciples knew it. His presence evoked a sense of security and well-being. Jesus was also holy. And to be in the presence of perfect transcendent purity made his followers aware of their sin. But his presence was also a bath for the soul, for he forgives sin." Further, Jesus was truth without the slightest deception and Jesus was power. Lepers were completely cleansed at his word and storm seas became calm. Jesus brought genuine release from real guilt, liberation from bondage as they followed him. His disciples awoke each day with bounding hope. They found life to be a continual feast in the presence of Jesus. What a great statement by Kent Hughes. And folks, that's exactly what we should find in Jesus a continual feast of joy regardless of how you feel and i hope that you have this joy because the point of all this is for christ to be saying that joy in him is one of the great realities of genuine christianity so if you don't have this joy then perhaps perhaps you don't know him or maybe you do know him you're a christian who's become too focused on yourself and your problems and not on Christ and the grace of the gospel and what that means is that you have allowed your problems to rob you of joy they shouldn't they shouldn't so cast your cares upon Christ and choose choose to be joyful by focusing on how much God has blessed you in Christ and the fact is the best is yet to come because we're going to spend eternity with our precious Savior in glory So the first reality of genuine Christianity that Jesus spoke of is that there is joy in knowing him, not sorrow. There's a second reality that he spoke of and obviously we won't be spending as much time on this, but it is very important. The second reality of genuine Christianity that Jesus spoke of is this. New life in him, new life in Christ and religious traditions cannot be mixed. Verses 36 through 38. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he'll both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Now, what is this talking about? Well, Luke says that Jesus told John's disciples and these Pharisees, he told them a parable. A parable means uh, just a story. In order to illustrate, in fact, there are several illustrations, but he's illustrating the uniqueness of his message and that it cannot be mixed with their religious traditions And remember, the reason he's saying all this is to just help these men understand why his disciples don't practice the religious traditions of fasting while they and the Pharisees do. That's what started this whole thing. And the first illustration that Jesus gives to help them understand this is this. He compares their man-made traditions and religious rituals to an old piece of clothing, garment, And he says that if you take a patch of cloth from a new garment and you sew it on an old garment, then you're going to ruin both of them because the new garment will now have a hole in it and the old garment will now have a patch that does not match. And according to Matthew's gospel, same incident Jesus added, Matthew says, he said that the first time the old garment with the new patch is washed, the new patch will shrink, And pull away from the garments and the result, he said, will be a worse tear than before. Likewise, he gave a second illustration. He said that you cannot take new wine and put it in old wineskins. Why? Well, because wineskins were made from animal skins that eventually became dry and brittle. So if you put new wine into these old brittle Animal skins, the fermenting new wine would eventually expand and cause the skins to burst. And then you'd lose the wine, not to mention the skins would be ruined as well. Instead, he said, put the new wine into fresh, new wineskins, because the fresh wineskins would still be pliable enough to expand during the process of the new wine fermenting. Now, listen closely. What Jesus is saying by using these illustrations of garments and wineskins is a critical truth about Christianity that all of us should understand. It's this. Jesus did not come to patch up rabbinical Judaism with all of its man-made traditions and religions, nor did he come to put new life into the old, worn-out traditions of the Pharisees. In other words, genuine Christianity, meaning pure gospel truth, and man made religious traditions do not mix; they cannot mix because genuine Christianity isn 't a set of external rules and rituals; it is new life christ 's life within them that he gives to those who repent of their sin and trust him as their Lord and Savior. It is two different things altogether. See folks, our faith our faith is not a religion at all. Sometimes I hear people talk about our faith like it 's a religion it 's not a religion at all it 's a relationship with God, through faith in Christ. It's the new wine of salvation that he pours into a heart that's been cleansed from sin. But even though Jesus told the disciples of John this and the Pharisees, they heard him that this new life he came to give was so much greater than the old life of rituals and these empty religious traditions, the Lord knew that, that some, in spite of what he said, some would reject what he offered and they'd still be content with their old religious ways and that's why Jesus closed this discussion in verse 39 by saying and no one after drinking old wine wishes for new for he says the old is good enough this is not a compliment this is actually a rebuke still using the illustration of old and new wine Jesus said that there will be some who will reject him and they reject the new wine of new life in him by settling for the old life of the old wine of empty religious traditions. In other words, they will reject the gospel. Why? Because they're completely satisfied with their religion. They're satisfied. They're secure in their religion. They're trying to earn their way to heaven by their good works, and they don't really want to change. Not at all. They will reject him and continue. On the same path they've been on. Concerning this rejection of the gospel, one Bible teacher explained why religious people do this. This is very relevant for you. If you witness to religious people, you've got some in your family, relatives, friends, this is most pertinent. The Lord's final illustration, he says, describes the tragedy of those who reject the gospel of grace and cling to their false system of works righteousness. Jesus likens such people to those who are content with the old wine they've been drinking. And have no desire to taste the new wine. False religion deadens the spiritual senses... Far enough into the drinking experience, the drinker does not care about the taste of the wine. It's one of the chief ways that the God of this world blinds the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Or like wine drinkers sloshing their familiar drink, people stubbornly cling to their comfortable religious traditions and have little interest in the new, fresh, saving truth of the gospel. This does explain why when you're witnessing to a religious person, they're often just not interested. This is why scripture emphatically teaches that a person can only come to Christ if God opens their eyes. Otherwise, we'd all be back here satisfied with whatever our old religion was, seeing no need to trust Christ for salvation. It is the Lord who opens our hearts by regenerating us. The only way to go to heaven and these men didn't know this the only way is by faith in Christ alone without adding anything and that is so relevant for today we preach Christ and him crucified not Christ and then church affiliation not Christ and baptism not Christ and good works it is Christ alone that is the pure gospel the key is alone Only Christ can save because only Christ paid the price for our sin. Only Christ imputes his righteousness to us when we believe on him. This is why the gospel can't be mixed with religious traditions. This is why Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, the life. He said no one comes to the Father except through him. So if you've never come to him for salvation, then come now. Turn from your religion. It will never get you to heaven. Only Christ will. And place your faith in Him alone. And if you have come to Him, then rejoice in Him. Rejoice in Christ by enjoying your relationship with Him. It starts now. Not when you get to heaven. It'll be better in heaven. But it starts now. Yes, fast when you're going through a hard time. That's certainly appropriate. But make sure that your life is characterized by joy in Him. If you'd like to speak to any of our pastors about anything that you've heard this morning, I'm going to ask some of the men to come to the front as we close the service. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage, a passage that can so easily be overlooked, a passage that has been difficult for some to understand, but we thank you for giving us understanding. And Lord, may we keep the gospel as pure as it's intended to be, pure. May we here at Lakeside, as we witness, not mix tradition with Christ, not mix empty routines, religious observances with Christ. May we proclaim Him and Him crucified as the only way to heaven. And I pray, Lord, for our people to rejoice. I pray for my own heart to rejoice even during the difficult times of life. I pray all at at times will fast if they're able to health-wise to do this. I pray. We will do it without calling attention to ourselves but seeking you and then we will see wonderful results as you answer the prayers of your people. And Lord, we do pray for those who may not know you but may have based their lives on empty religious traditions, church affiliation, all of these things. And pray that you will open their hearts to the gospel and draw them to yourself that they may come to Christ and him alone. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.